Hope y'all are doing well. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, that's where we'll be today. Um, If you've been with us for a while, you know that we have been looking at the book of Acts now for uh, about 30 sermons or so. Um, Actually, next week, we will take a month break from the book of Acts. And the month of December, we're going to preach on, you'll never guess, Christmas. So we're going to look at... uh, what Jesus brings to us in the holiday season, and uh, that'll be through the month of December, and then after that, back in January, we'll start back in Acts. But today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 12. So I want to give you a little bit of a uh, little bit of an update or, or a review, if you haven't been here, just to kind of let you know what's happening in big picture, and then we'll pray. So, and, and Acts, if you remember, the key verse of the book of Acts, is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Whenever Luke is writing the book of Acts, he's wanting us to understand how he's going to lay out the book for us. And so he supplies a a bit of an outline, if you will, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And he tells us in Acts chapter 1, 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That happens in chapter 2. And then he says, and you will be my witnesses. This is the Greek word martyreo, or where we get the word martyr. This is just people who are going to fulfill the Great Commission. They're going to be the people that talk about what Jesus has done. He says, so you're going to be the, the people that talk about what Jesus has done once you've received the Holy Spirit. That's every Christian. And then he says it this way. Um, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so we've seen that in chapters 1 through 7 is Jerusalem. 8 through 13 is Judea and Samaria. And then after that is the ends of the earth. And so where we are is in chapter 12. We're in this, this bridge chapter, if you will. So we're getting from Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And when we get to the next chapter, we'll see the missionary journey starting to take their shape and happen. Uh, Paul has three missionary journeys. And so in chapter 12 is really, um, we finished in chapter 11, 10 and 11, really kind of as one piece where it was just those who were Jewish that were being told the gospel. And then Acts chapter 10 uh, God tells Peter, it also can be people who are Gentiles. We see the first church planted, fully Gentile church planted in Antioch at the very end of chapter 11. And now we've got to get to the missionary journeys. And so you have chapter 12 as this bridge chapter where we see, okay, the gospel is not just in Judea and Samaria, but the ends of the earth. The missionary journeys are about to start. Gentiles are being saved. But then we pick up in chapter 12, bridging us and getting us to there. Now, persecution has happened in the book of Acts, but just a little bit. A little bit in the end of five, a little bit there uh, in, uh, when Stephen is stoned, but not a whole lot. But now it's, it's picking back up in chapter 12, verse 1. You can see it first thing. And about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. So Herod is going to start persecuting the church again. And the chapter is really how the church kind of deals with the persecution that comes their way. Uh, what are the ways of God in trying to handle this persecution? But also, what are the ways of man? How does man try to maneuver and do things as well? So we're going to pray. We're going to uh, look at chapter 12. And then um, we'll, after we pray, look at the text. And then we'll uh, do the Lord's Supper and, and baptism. So today, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the evangelical hat trick. Preaching, doing the Lord's Supper, and doing a baptism. Boom. Now I can get a good rest and sleep like a Calvinist this afternoon. Um, then you have to watch the Panthers lose this week, so it would be great. Um, anyway, so let's pray, and then we will be in chapter 12, verse 1. Chapter 12, verse 1, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your love, your mercy, your grace. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for your Son. 
that you gave to us. Uh, thank you that he was willing to be obedient even to the point of death. We pray that as we look at this particular text and we see how persecution affects the church, Lord, uh, that we would be like them, that we would want to follow the ways of God outlined in this text as a church, not the ways of man, that we would trust in you, that if any circumstances arise in our own lives where we need deliverance, where we need to be uh, removed from it, that we'll, we'll believe in you and trust in you and we'll see that you're sovereign and you're good and pray that you would do it. But even if you don't, we'll realize that you're, you're sovereign and you're good anyway, should you choose not to, and that you still are worthy of all glory. And so we pray, God, that as we look at this text, that you would do amazing things in our heart. We know that uh, <clears throat> all of us are experiencing some measure or some level of need in our lives, and so we pray that you would help us. Use these verses in this text uh, to speak to us by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you really believe that God is in control? Do you really believe that he's sovereign over all things? Do you believe that he will send ministers uh, or angels, if you will, to come and minister to you, to, to the elect? Do you believe that he'll do that? He does this in the text. These are questions that will be asked and answered as we look at chapter 12. Do we believe in the power of prayer? Do you believe that there is a power in prayer? Or do you believe in the power of prayer? Personally, you've experienced in your own life. These are the questions that we'll, see, that we'll have asked and answered as we looked at chapter 12. Will we follow the ways of man and how they try to do things? Or will we follow the ways of God? And by following the ways of God, we need to be keyed in or tapped into the source, if you will, through prayer. Uh, just before World War II, there was a town in te Texas called Istica. There was a fire that took place around 1940 or so. If you don't know history very well, World War II was around 40 to 45. Um, some people might not. Anyway, uh, there was a school fire that happened, and it took the lives of 263 children. School fire took the lives of 263 children. It was a horrifying tragedy. And after the war was over, um, the town began to build a new school. And they put the finest sprinkler system in the world in the school. So this tragedy would never happen again. Never again would the citizens of Issaquah be caught with such a tragedy on their hands. Honor students were even selected to take citizens of the community on tours throughout the new school. Just to show them the finest sprinkler system ever assembled in the world. The town continued to grow, and so after seven years of this new school, this, they needed an addition uh, on the school to be built. And so the new construction began, and it was discovered seven years after that the new state-of-the-art, finest sprinkler system in the world was never connected. Some of us need to be connected to the source. We may have the finest sprinkler system, if you will, in the world happen in our life. But we need to be connected to the source through prayer. We need to be less reliant upon ourselves and our ways and our thoughts. And more reliant on the Lord and His ways and the way He's designed things to be. We need to be connected to the source. And in this particular text, we'll be challenged through it. There are no sermon notes today on the screen. Although I do have many things I'm going to say. Um, but think of it as, as a ledger. 
Think of it, if you, if you know anything about accounting, if you don't, that's okay. But just pretend like on the left side, everything's bad. And everything on the right side, everything's good, right? So on the left side are the ways of man. And we're going to see four ways of man here juxtapositioned to the four ways of God. And we're going to contrast the two. And as we contrast, we'll see in our own lives that we'll lean into the ways of man sometimes in our life, but we should desire through sanctification, through walking through the Spirit, and because we've been filled by the Spirit and trusted in Christ, to lean more into the ways of God in our life. Verse 1, you can see, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belong to the church. We need to understand this Herod. This is not the same Herod in Matthew chapter 2 who tried to kill every baby uh, that had been born. But they are related. The Herod in Matthew chapter 2 was his grandfather. Um, to understand, I'm going to read uh, I'm going to read a little excerpt from Kent Hughes. He, can't, he said, I can't say it any better. To understand Herod. To understand the, the persecution cited in this particular under text, we need to understand what King Herod of Acts 12 was like. His father... Aristobulus had been murdered by his own father, Herod the Great, the ruler who had made the order to slaughter all innocent babies of Christ's birth at Matthew 2. So his grandfather killed his own son because he didn't want to give up the throne to him. He probably thought he was trying to ascend to him. and He was, he was a crazy man. So this Herod in, in, in Acts chapter 12, um, his granddad killed his own father. And so the, after the death of his dad... Aristobulus, Herod of Acts 12, was sent over to Rome to be educated. And there he grew up as a close friend of the imperial family. He was something of a playboy. And in Acts 23, he fled Palestine to escape his creditors. So he had built up a lot of money, didn't pay him off, and then fled. And in Palestine, he lived in humility and in poverty under his uncle, Herod Antipas. Upon his return to Rome, he was imprisoned by the emperor Tiberius for some critical critical remarks that he had made about this guy. Uh, his life had hit rock bottom. But then Tiberius died. And Herod's childhood friend Caligula, not necessarily a good guy, came to power um, and freed him from prison. Not only freed him from prison, but gave him a gold chain weighing as much as his iron fetters weighed whenever he was in prison. This is like Mr. T style kind of uh, gold chain here. Maybe heavier. But um, soon Herod was named ruler of some Palestinian provinces. And another childhood friend, Claudius, succeeded after Caligula, and Herod became the ruler of Judea and Samaria. Here's the key sentence. Murder and intrigue had been the currency of his entire life. He was raised in this kind of lifestyle, raised in this kind of mindset. This is all he knew. Politicians, murder and intrigue, don't be a good guy, do everything you can to get what you want. Herod was preeminently a politician. Listen to this. This is how he lived. When he was with the Romans, he did as the Romans. When you're in Rome, do as the Romans. And though he was Jewish only by race, but not by conviction, whenever he was with the Jews, he acted like he was Jew, Jewish. The Mishnah records that during the annual procession bearing the first fruits to the temple, when they reached the temple mount, Agrippa the king, Herod, Agrippa the king, who was Herod, would take his basket on his shoulder and enter as far as the temple court. He would do anything to maintain his popularity with the Jewish people. The Jewish people hated him anyway, but he wanted to do anything he could to maintain his popularity. However, he saw Jewish Christians. So we don't just mean people who are Jewish who weren't Christians. The people who are Jewish who are Christians, they're, they're different. He hates them even more. We can see because he's laying violent hands on them. That's the church. 
Um, he would do anything. However, he saw Jewish Christians now as divisive and believed their activities would disturb all the people. And so he wasn't finished with his persecution of them. So we understand who this guy is now. We understand how he thinks, how he operates. Uh, he operates in the currency of, of murder. He operates in the currency of uh, intrigue and political thought and political acting. And it says in verse 1, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John. And here we have another martyr of the faith. Uh, this is getting into the, the apostles, though. This is a big murder. This is one of the 12 being killed. This is a, a big thing that happens. And you can imagine the brother of James, John, was just absolutely distraught. It says he killed him with the sword. And when he saw that killing James pleased the Jews, then he also went then and, and arrested Peter. And so he's, that pleased them. Uh, and so the Jews don't like Christians, and I just killed one. And so that made all the Jews happy, and they hate me. I want them to like me because I want to be, be a politician who's liked by everybody. I want to try to finagle my way into situations. And so I'm going to arrest Peter too. But when he arrested Peter, you can see there at the end of verse 3, this was during the days of unleavened bread. That didn't, he, didn't, he didn't grab James during the days of unleavened bread, and so he just killed him right away. But he arrested Peter during the days of unleavened bread. And during the days of, of unleavened bread, uh, executions were not permitted during this particular time. So when it was over, a, surely a mock trial was to come, and Peter's death was quickly to follow as well. Um, but humanly speaking, the days of unleavened bread is the very thing that kept Peter alive. Humanly speaking, God kept him alive and can keep anybody alive if he chooses. Humanly speaking, he did not die because he was arrested during this days of unleavened bread. But anyway, uh, Herod uh, sees that it pleases them, so he goes and he arrests Peter. And when he had seized him, he put him in the prison, delivering him over to four squadrons of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover, here it is when it's over, to bring him out to the people. Much like Judas was, uh, Jesus was brought out to the people. What do you want me to do? Kill him. Right, we, uh, we want you to kill him. So that's what's coming. So <clears throat> here we're already beginning to see how men think, how men operate, what are the ways of man uh, illustrated in the life of Herod. The first thing I want you to see, this is on the left, on the bad side, if you will. The first ways of man is, like Herod, um, they misuse the power that's been given to them uh, in order to hurt people rather than to serve. He's in a position of authority, and this position of authority he has, he's using to hurt people rather than to serve them. Everyone here uh, likely has some level of responsibility over people. It may be small. you may, be, you may be a mom, you're, and you have authority over children, and you may not work or whatever, um, which is no big deal, but that's your authority. You may have some authority in your neighborhood. You have authority in your home. You have authority in your job. You may have authority in some way. If you're in authority in some capacity whatsoever, even if you're the oldest sibling out of all the youngest siblings, um, this power that you have over them, even if it's just physical, has been given to you by God to serve, not to misuse for power. And so the ways of man is, if there's any authority given to me, <clears throat> I want to use it in order to hurt people rather than to serve. But the Christian motif of power is not given to us um, in order for us to hurt people. It's in order for us to be like Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve. And Herod here uh, uses his position of power to hurt people. He lays violent hands on the church. And so the first thing that we see here is that he wants to hurt people. And it says that whenever he laid violent hands on the church and he took James, the brother of John, with 
killed him with the sword. It pleased the Jews. Why did it please the Jews? What was it about the murder of James with the sword that pleased the Jews? One, because it was one of the apostles. He got one of the big 12. And this was a big deal. Like, those are the key leaders, and I just killed one of them. And so now there's only 11 left, 11 to go. But there's a second thing as well, is that not only did he kill James, he killed James, what says, quote, with the sword. And in this tradition, uh, killing someone with the sword was reserved for those who were thought of as to be murderers and apostates. And so the Jews on the outside, as they see James killed with the sword, it's put on... To, from Herod, put on demonstration to all the people, let you, let you know that we believe this guy, James, to be an apostate, a murderer. He does not know who God, he's a wrongdoer. And so the Jews, of course, love this because they think they, they know real theology. They think they know God, and so they love the fact that James was killed as an apostate. And so uh, here we have Herod illustrating for us the first ways of man, which is that they take their power and they mismu- misuse it re- to hurt people rather than to serve. But as believers, that's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to serve with any level of authority we have. But watch what happens. When he saw that, pleading, that, that killing James with the sword was pleasing to the Jews, what does he do? He proceeds to arrest Peter also. They liked that. They like me. They like what I'm doing. I'll do it again. And he arrests Peter. And so the second way of man we see here is that he's the man is driven by people pleasing. Herod is driven by people pleasing. He arrested James and killed him with the sword. He saw that it pleased the Jews. He likes the fact that he can people please. He likes that it pleased them. Oh, I'm going to do it again. Where's Peter? I'm going to grab Peter. I mean, it's a pretty big deal to get Peter. I, I got one of the 12. I'm going to get the guy of the 12. And so the second way of man is that they are driven by people pleasing. He was driven, Herod was driven by people. He lived for the approval of others. He operated in intrigue that was the currency of his life. Murder was a, he's a politician at heart. And the way to stay a politician is to keep the people uh, thinking you're awesome. Just telling them lies and doing things that you think they want to hear. And so he is living for the approval of others. He's driven by people pleasing. This can be the way that you can live your life. You can be motivated to do things, the ways of man, you be motivated to do things uh, because at your heart of hearts, you need to be approved of. You need to be approved of. And so the easiest way for you to find that approval is in other people. And so I'll do things, and my primary source of security and joy is finding the approval of other people. And this isn't gospel. This isn't gospel. That's the ways of man. The ways of God is realizing my primary source of security and joy is based in the approval of God. But it's even better than that. It's not that I have to, like man, seek their approval and continually seek their approval and continually seek their approval. That's not how it works with God. It's not like, okay, I'll just direct it over to God and I'll continually seek his approval and continually seek his approval and keep doing things. That's not how it works. Instead, the gospel declares, so we don't work for the approval of God. We work from the already established approval of God. This is the gospel. In Christ, we're already approved. In Christ, we have already been forgiven of our sin. And so based on the approval that has already been lavished on us and never to be taken away and never ending, there's never an ending of the continual approval that he's given to us, not because you're earning it, but because of Christ's death has already given it to us completely. 
We work from the never-ending approval of God based on the cross of Christ and us being forgiven. And now we're driven to live a life of worship to God, not trying to gain more approval. There's no, there's no earning uh, salvation. And we're free now to not have to have uh, pe- to try to please people. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't please people, right? It's fine to do things that make people happy. As a matter of fact, I recommend it if you're married. It makes, makes life good. Like, but I'm doing it because I am saved, because I'm in Christ, because the Lord has saved me. I want to do things that please my wife because that's what Jesus wants me to do. Not because my primary source of security, my primary source of joy is people pleasing. No, my primary source of security is found in the gospel and the gospel alone. And I work from that approval and live a life of worship doing the things that Jesus asked me. And one of those things are being nice to people, being a good guy, helping out, letting Christ live through me and serve others. And so we see here that we don't have to live for the approval of others. Living for the approval of others is exhausting. It never ends. You're never going to get it right. Because we're fickle people and we'll always be sad again. People will never be fully satisfied in you. It's fleeting. It's walking out uh, on a a day when you're going to go kill an eight-point buck and going, and you see the fog go away. Or... Seeing the deer running by in one second. It's fleeting. Why won't you stop? That's what the, people, the approval of man's like. You can continually go after it, but it never, ever satisfies. Instead, we can be most fully satisfied, find our highest source of security and joy in the already established approval of God in the gospel. So, so far we've seen two ways of man. They misuse power in order to hurt rather than serve, and they're driven by people-pleasing. Now I want to show you a couple ways of God. There's four on each side. We'll bounce back and forth. So let's look what's happening. Now Luke is going to go to painstaking efforts to help you understand that Peter was really, really guarded. I mean, he is securely guarded. And he wants you to understand that he's so securely guarded that the deliverance is an absolute miracle. It's not like one kind of guy's there and Peter pulls a little mission impossible and you know, gets out of there. And it's no big deal. Like he had to have God deliver him or that's it. So he tells us in verse 4, when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out. So Peter's back in prison. He's handcuffed to the wall. He's got two soldiers on both sides. And right outside the door, he's got another two soldiers. Four guys watching this guy. Four soldiers watching this guy. He's, he secured him up in there really well. And then it says this. So Peter was kept in prison. But here it is. Earnest prayer was uh, earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Earnest prayer. The ways of God, first way of, of God is this. His desire is that the church would see the value in earnest prayer. This word earnest uh, in the Greek connotes the idea of stretching, straining. This is stretching and straining. This is the same word. Uh, when it says Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was in earnest prayer or stretching a strain. This is the same word. And just imagine the earnestness of which Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Think of it this way. Um, the person you love the most in the world has been taken. And you've, there's nothing you can do. You're not Liam Neeson. You don't have a certain set of skills where you can call him up and say, in three days, I'm going to take my, my person I love back. There's none of that. Like, you got no skills, right? Um, 
The only thing you can do is realize there's nothing I can do. I want you to put yourself in that place and think of the earnestness of which you would pray. How hard, how stretching, how straining, how agonizing would you pray? Lord, just do anything. I, I can do nothing. I'm absolutely hopeless. I'm absolutely helpless. I'm begging you to do something. That's what's going on here. Peter was kept in prison, but stretching, straining, earnest prayer was made to God by the church. This is amazing. So God, the ways of God is he wants his church, his people to see the value of earnest, stretching, straining, agonizing prayer. I want you to feel, put yourself in there. Derek Thomas says, the corporate prayer meeting is the powerhouse of the church. Without it, the church is deprived of its energy and zeal. Spurgeon, who gets everything right, right, says this. We shall never see much change for the better in our churches in general until the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. I'm not saying that's for remedy, but I'm saying that's for remedy. We shall never see much change for the better in our churches in general until the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. We have one of those coming up very soon, December 7th. Kent Hughes says it this way. God can do anything he wants, but there are some things he gives only an answer to prayer. Prayer is the thing that activates the will of God to happen. So God's dependent on us to pray in order to move. Yeah, but the thing is, is that he sovereignly ordains the prayer. So he's still the Lord and sovereign over all. When you pray, he sovereignly prayed you. And you're not an automaton when he does it. It's all real. But prayer activates it. And so, yes, you have to pray. And the Lord has sovereignly ordained that you would pray. But you got to pray. We need to be the kind of people that feel the absolute necessity that these people, the agonizing, the straining, God, move in this situation. There's no way anything's ever going to happen unless you do something. It's not, well, I've exhausted all my resources. I've done everything I can. I mean, I have acted in all my power. And so since I have done every possible thing, uh, I'll leave this last little part. God, I need for you to do this. I mean, I've done this. I just need for you to do that part. That's not what we're talking about. It's not like I've exercised everything. God, just do this one last part. I'm good, and I'll take back over. That's not what we're talking about. This is stretching, straining, agonizing. There's nothing I can do. Hopeless, helpless. God, you got to do something. Move now. Boys, uh, if you look over in, in, in verse 12, the, the prayer that they're talking about happened in Mary's house. Mary was John Mark's mom. Mary was probably wealthy. She had a pretty big house. She pulled them all into the house. we got to pray. It says at the very end, it said, the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, whose other name was Mark, where many gathered together and were praying. So we see the nature in which this has happened. James Boyce says, regarding this little prayer meeting, the interrupted prayer meeting, which we're going to get to the story, it's hilarious. It says this. He says they were praying. Boyce says they were praying to God. They were praying together. They were praying earnestly. And they were praying specifically. So this is the, this is the prayer meeting that's happening. Uh, and the Lord wants us to see. I mean, this is the ways of God. He desires for his church to see and understand the value of earnest prayer. We need to pray. Let's ask God for great things. Ephesians 3.20, things we could never even conceive. God, do stuff that we can't even think of. Just do that stuff too. Let's ask God for big things. Let's not misuse the power we have by trying to manipulate everything we can and doing our own stuff. Instead... In difficult situations, let's pray.
And we see the value of going to the Lord, our only hope, our only, our only chance of anything happening. He wants us to understand that. The next thing uh, is in this entire section I want you to see. But it's, it's this. So the second, or the first ways of God is that he wants his power, he wants his, his church to see the value of earnest prayer. The second way of God is this. Um, he has... He wants to put on display to us all, or help us understand, that he has the ability to deliver. He has the ability to deliver. I didn't say he wants you to understand he'll deliver you. I didn't say that. I said he wants us to understand that he has the ability to deliver. I mean, right here in the text, we can contrast James and we can contrast Peter and realize James didn't get any deliverance here. Peter did. Either way, God is sovereign. Either way, God is good. But what we need to understand is God has the ability to deliver. Therefore, we pray. God's sovereign. And if you really believe that, that's why I started off. Do we really believe that God is sovereign? And God is good. He's both. And so since he has the ability to deliver, we pray. So the second way of, of God is we need, he wants his church to understand that he has the ability to to deliver. Now we're going to look at the, the story here, and it's it's really really funny. I find it funny. Y'all might not find it as funny as me. First service did not find it as funny as me, but y'all are, are funny people. So uh, let's see what happens. Um, now remember, uh, Luke has just gone to painstaking efforts in verse four and five to help us understand. I mean, Peter's guarded. Two people beside him. Two people right outside. And it says this. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping. This, this sleeping of Peter is not just a side note thing. This is Peter putting um, on display to us, I trust in the sovereignty of God. I'm not just super tired and need a nap. I mean, he's, he's between the two soldiers. Maybe he's laying his head on him and drooling. Like, he's, he's, he's asleep, resting in the goodness of the Lord. The Lord will deliver me, or the Lord might not deliver me. I might be like James. Or I might be delivered. We'll see. I don't know. But he's sleeping because he understands he can rest in a good sovereign God. The other thing you need to know about Peter is this dude is a heavy sleeper. I mean, that's the only thing I can say is he is a heavy, heavy, heavy sleeper. It says Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Um, My wife is a heavy sleeper. She's the Michael Jordan of sleep. Uh, no one, no one can, can defeat her. She's the greatest of all time. She's the goat. So, um, in an eight, uh, this is what I learned. In an eight-hour span of Christy sleeping, um, the first two hours, if you're going to have a conversation with her, don't. This is pointless, right? After four, if she gets waked up, she'll remember it. But when I was in college, um, she had, like I said, she's Michael Jordan sleeping, so she goes to bed early, too. She doesn't mess around. So I called her in college at 10. And this is in the Dayton phase where, you know, you're still like, want to do everything perfect and right, you know. So she, she hadn't worked up to the point where she was like, I'm asleep, just, I'll see you tomorrow. You know, it was, oh, no, I'm fine. So I called her up at 10, just, you know, talking or whatever. I'm like, hey, how you doing? She's like, oh, good. I was like, you sleep? Just, and I, no, I'm good, I'm good, I'm talking, I'll talk. I was like, okay. We talked for 30 minutes on the phone, 30 minutes. And then the next morning, we were, uh, met for breakfast at, at the CAF or at CSU. And so I'm referencing, as we're talking, some of the conversation that we had uh, the night before on the phone. For 30 minutes we talked on the phone. And she's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, the 30 minute conversation we had last night? She's like, 
no, we didn't. I was like, yeah, we did. We, we talked for 30 minutes on the phone. She's like, no, we didn't. And so I learned at that particular, before I even got married, never talk to Christy for the first two hours of her sleep. She's not going to remember it all. Similarly, Peter's a heavy sleeper. And so <laughs> just had to work that story in Christian. So anyway, um, Peter is also this kind of sleeper. I mean, he's just, he's just completely zonked out here. And you'll see uh, what happens here. There's a lot of interesting things here. So he's completely asleep. And behold, uh, an angel, the angel's appearance is bizarre. The angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. So we don't know about the light. We don't know if, if he brought a flashlight or he brought his iPhone or if he just glows himself. But there, he brought a light with him. And it's, it's bright enough that we can see. And it says, and he struck Peter. Peter is such a heavy sleeper. It's not, hey, Peter, get up. Hey, Peter, Peter. Nothing. So he's just like, boom, like punch him in the side. Like think of struck as not, not like a, hey, Peter, it's, it's a hit. Like it's a pretty sharp jab. It's a, it's a Danielle Butts jab to the gut here. And he says he struck Peter on the side and he woke him up and he says this, get up quickly. And so he hits him pretty hard. So this, this angelic appearance is very strange, right? First, he's shining. Second, he jabs Peter in the gut, which is pretty crazy. Um, Peter, who's the heavy sleeper, gets up, but still in a slumber, still in a slumber. And he says this. This is another amazing thing. And the chains fell off. So he's handcuffed. And all of a sudden, the chains fall off. And every worship leader inserts that line into every worship song there. Chains fell off. Or anyway, um, that's an ongoing joke between me and Jordan. Um, and then it says this. And the angel said to him, now, this is where it gets bizarre in a lot of different ways. Dress yourself. Why does Peter not have clothes on? <laughs> Why don't you have clothes on, Peter? Maybe it's because you're a prisoner. But why are they there? Like, why don't you have clothes on, Peter? That's weird. And then the specificity that the angel has to give him on how to get dressed is bizarre. Like, he's a grown man. He knows how to get dressed. And the angel is treating him like he's three and telling him, Peter, I want you to get dressed. I want you to put your sandals on. And then after you put your sandals on, I want you to wrap your cloak around yourself. This is how I need for you to get dressed right now. It's very, very specific, interesting. Like I said, I, why would you tell a grown man how to get dressed and why is Peter not clothes on? These are all questions I have as I'm looking at it. And just why? Why? And anyway, it says this. So Peter follows his directions because um, he doesn't know how to get dressed, I guess. And then it says he went out and he followed him. He did. This is the, the deep sleep he's in now. We can understand from Acts chapter 10 when he went to the trance and the bacon falls down. He, maybe he's just thinking it's one of those things again. But this is what happens. Um, he says, he went out and he followed him. And here's, he did not know what was being done by the angel was real. He thought he was just seeing a vision. So he's dreaming that the angel showed up and dreamed him out of there. But he doesn't think that it's actually really happening. He really thinks he's back there in the, in the, in the prison still. And then it says, they passed... Uh, and when they had passed the first and the second guard, so like, boom, fall off. And he's just like, get yourself dressed. He's like, okay, get, my, get myself dressed. And he goes out and then all of a sudden just walk right past these people. Here they are. They're, they're awake, but they just walk past, right past them. Like, they don't even know they're there. Like, oh, look at, the, look at the birds. I guess I just need to let those guys go by. We don't know. So all, they get past them all. And then it says this. And they came to the iron gate leading into the city. And it opened them, quote, of its own accord. Greek word, automate. Where we get our Greek word, our, our, our English word automatic. So, you know, they pulled up to the little sensor. The gate opens up like this must be where it is right around here. Peter's just stand here and jump up and down. Automate of its own accord. The gate just opens right up and it says uh, the gate opens up. And so like he walks him past all these people. Gate. 
this is just a bazaar showing up, right? And then it says, it gets him out there, and this is where it gets awesome. And it opened up its own accord, and it went out, and it went along the street, and then, poof, immediately the angel uh, left him. So, like, they're walking, he's, every, everything's just a dream, poof. And he's just standing there. You can see it's like one of those, hey, you know, what do you think we ought to do, angel? I was thinking we should probably... Go. All right, what's going on here? Why aren't you here anymore? Like, he gets a little nervous, a little bit, but poof. And then it's at that moment, when Peter came to himself, he said, <laughs> like, okay, this was for real, not just a dream, I'm actually awake now, for real. I'm going to remember this from now on. And it says, I'm sure, now I'm sure. It wasn't whenever my handcuffs fell off. It wasn't when I walked by people magically. It wasn't when the automatic door went off or I even got punched in the gut by the angel. But it's at this particular time as I stand in the street and the angel magically disappeared. Now I'm sure that the Lord has finally sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod. And from all, here it is, that the Jewish people were expecting. And that is when this unleavened bread days are over they're they're expecting i'm gonna die and so that's not even the best part we're still getting to some hilarious stuff that's all funny there's even more hilarious stuff and it says in verse 12 when he realized this he went to the house of mary he's like i'm by myself this isn't good to be by myself i know where i'm gonna go mary's house they're probably all there it's the biggest house they're all they should be praying that's where i'm gonna go it says they went there we already saw this part they're in gather together <clears throat> and this is this is the best part Rhoda means rose. Um, it's just a side name, a side note for you. But it says, when they knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl, poor little fella, poor little girl, she's hilarious, uh, named Rhoda came to answer. So in this, in this day and age, whenever, you're, whenever you would knock, you would knock and you'd say, hey, it's Peter. You would just say that. We, we just stand there and, you know, you see who it is. But they didn't have eye holes, I guess. So um, you couldn't get them at the Hebrew Mart there. So they were all sold out for Black Friday. So uh, you go there and I'm just kidding. They, knocking on the door. Hey, it's Peter. Hey, it's Peter. Hey, hey it's Peter. And so um, Rhoda, the servant girl, she's coming up to the door. <laughs> she's coming up the door and she's hearing the knocking and she's hearing it's Peter. And instead of thinking, I'll let him in. She's so excited that it's Peter. She's like, Peter's here. And then turns around and runs back into the house. And so Peter's just still standing there like, uh, hello. So this is where it gets awesome. Um, and when he knocked at the doorway of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran back in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, this is where it's even more funny. Um, you're out of your mind. You must be crazy. I mean, we've been praying about that, but no, you're out of your mind. He's not at the gate. That's what we're praying for. But that doesn't make any sense that he'd be there. That is what we've been at, beseeching the Lord of all hosts and the sovereign God of all the world. But, but you're out of your mind. That's not him. And, and it says even more. But she kept insisting, no, Peter's really there. And you can just hear Peter like, guys, hey, guys, it's Peter, guys. And then, but they kept insisting. And they're like, no, it's just his angel. What does that even mean? I don't know. Like, he's now morphed into an angel because he's dead. And he's just showing up saying, hey, I'm really dead now. But it's just me to let you know I'm dead now. Uh, I guess you don't have to pray anymore. Like, like no, it's not his angel. Like, it's just his angel. She's like, no. I mean, we don't know how long this happened. But it went on for some kind of time where they had to have some level of back and forth for them to finally say, okay, we'll come. And then verse 16 is hilarious. Look at this. <laughs> but Peter continued knocking. It's like, guys, for real. I don't want to be outside. I'm kind of a escape prisoner here. Let me in. Don't want to die. Um, so Peter just kept on knocking. And then they finally came to the door. And they opened and they saw him. And what were they? Amazed. It really is you. Wait a second here. You're knocking. I mean, you're praying to the Lord of all, all hosts. Please deliver this guy. 
the servant girl just comes and says, Peter's at the door. He really is. You have this back and forth. You hear the knocking. And then all of a sudden you open it up and you're like, like it's, there he is. And you're just like, whoa. Here's a, uh, here's a ways of man. Third ways of man. They are truly slow to believe in God's ability and willingness to answer our prayers. And we're amazed. We shouldn't be amazed um, if God doesn't answer, or God answers our prayer. We should be amazed that God doesn't answer our prayer. He's our good father. He loves to lavish gifts upon his children. What should amaze us is not that he did answer, it's that when he doesn't. And he doesn't sometimes. Just ask Garth Brooks. That's a joke. Anyway, um, but the ways of man are that they're slow to believe for some reason in God's ability and willingness to answer our prayers. And here we see this back and forth for a while. And finally they go and they're amazed. <clears throat> but motioning to them with his hand, he's like, Shh. they finally like, oh, it's you. Like, Shh. be quiet. And he said, be quiet. And he describes to them, here it is, this is great, uh, how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Peter didn't get himself out of prison, the Lord did it. God was sovereign from the beginning to the end. God gets all the credit for it. And what are you delivering from? The prison. Brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James. That's not James, you know, from verse 1. That's James, Jesus' brother. The guy that wrote the book of James later. Tell this, these things to James and the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. He's like, you know, this is a dangerous place. I stood on the street way too long for y'all to answer the door. I need to get out of here. Um, verse 18. Now there was, we'll, we'll come back to verse 18. So, a couple notes as we look at this story I want you to see is this. Number one, these aren't the ways of man, ways of God. These are just a couple reflections that we looked, as we looked at the bulk of the story. One, Peter's deliverance was the last minute. And sometimes that can be the situation for us. I mean, he did have to endure some things. The arrest, the false arrest, putting in prison. Obviously, he doesn't have clothes on for some reason. There's all kinds of things he has to endure. And Peter's deliverance was... At the last minute. And for our own lives. As we earnestly pray. It's not like boom. All right, there it We may have to endure some things. And may have. The Lord's sovereign plan is that. He wants us to go through something. For our, the purpose of our sanctification. That we might understand. But he's good. And he understands why. The second thing I want you to know. Which I've already mentioned. Is we need to keep a balance here. Between Peter and James. James did not get delivered. Peter did. God is sovereign. We don't always understand his ways, but he's always good. My mom has cancer. She's had cancer for four years. She's been told recently, there'll never be a day for the rest of your life where you won't have to have treatment. You're going to have it for the rest of your life. You're never, ever not going to have chemo for the rest of your life. So that's more like a James kind of note, you know, like there's no point where this cancer is delivered. It's she's lived longer than most and she seems to be in good health. But sometimes the Lord does. And we just need to keep a contrast between the two and realize, and whatever happens, the Lord's sovereign, he's all-powerful, and the Lord's still good. Whatever happens. With James, I mean, in a sense, James was, deli- James was delivered from that world and Herod and's with Jesus right away. So, in a sense, he is. But we need to keep balance here in realizing that when we ask for deliverance, sometimes... The sovereign Lord doesn't deliver us in the way that we desire. The last thing I want you to note um, is the gospel is highlighted here in this Peter's deliverance. Peter was in prison. Peter was condemned to die. 
Peter was hopeless. Peter was chained. God breaks in unexpectedly. God breaks in, not anybody else, but God comes in, displays that he is the only one that has the power to save. And to all the worship leaders' chagrin, the chains fell off. And then he was delivered from prison. And so they do have a right to say that. And the gospel certainly is highlighted in here. We were all in our sin and we were prison. We were condemned to die eternally, forever. We were hopeless and we were in chains. We were, we were prisoners of that sin. And God, through Christ, breaks in unexpectedly. Though it was prophesied in the Old Testament, not known. He breaks in, displays the power that only he possesses to save, goes to the cross for us. Um, and he saves us. Our cha- it, for those who put their faith and trust in Christ and his work on the cross for them, for, uh, repent of their sin and believe only in Christ, the chains fall off. They're now delivered from the prisoner or the prison of sin and delivered into, uh, become slaves of righteousness. They're delivered away from, from sin. Charles Wesley in a song called And Can It Be writes it this way. Possibly after he's read Acts 12, writes this way. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's light. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I awoke and the dungeon flamed with light. My chain fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. This is the gospel. This is what happens for all of us who are in Christ. This gospel is even highlighted in the, in the narrative of Peter's deliverance. In a no doubt comedic way and it's not a one-to-one. But for sure... All of us were slaves to sin and in prison. And then the Lord delivered us from this. And our sinful chains fell off. Now, um, there's a few other things I want you to see. If you look in verse 18, <clears throat> here, uh, Herod is going to become massively embarrassed. He is a laughingstock. And as a politician, it's the last thing you want. And so, of course, as always, a man, he's going he's gonna to get out of Dodge. You can see in verse 18, uh, now when the day came, after the end of the, the, the days of unleavened bread, you know, they're ready to go kill Peter. Uh, when the day came, there was no little disturbance. The Bible says it this way. It just means there was a great disturbance um, among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. After Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. This is every soldier. If you lose your prisoner, you, you're going to you're going to be killed. Um, and when he went down, then he went down from Judea and Caesarea and spent time there. So. Here's the fourth way of man. You can see what's going to happen. Um, well, you can keep reading. And Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon at this new region he went to. They came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robe. Robes took his seat upon the throne. This is unbelievable. This is so uh, crazy. He thinks he's God. He delivered an oration to them and then the people were shouting either out of fear or completely out of adoration and worship. They yelled uh, the voice of God and not a man. So here we see Herod uh, illustrating for us the last way of man. This is the ways of man. We flee from problems rather than solve them. We don't talk things through. Don't spend the time that we should. Here's a problem. It's all messed up. Instead of as a believer working through this and talking, I'm going to flee. I'm going to leave all the wreckage in my path. And I'm going to go to some other people that will stroke my ego. This is the ways of man. This is not the ways of Christians. Christians stay. Christians don't leave things. Christians don't leave just because things aren't going their way. Christians stay. They work through things. They don't leave wreckage in their path. They don't have to have their ego stroked. Instead, 
they're absolutely fine with just loving and worshiping the Lord. But the ways of man are not that way. We also see how God works in this. If you keep reading, it says the people were shouting the voice of God and not a man. Here's this in this particular situation. He's sitting on a throne and people are deifying him. They're literally calling him a God and he's just eating it up. Right. And God shares his glory with no one. This is not this is not God's way to say you can have a little bit of glory here for this day. You know, I've had a lot. I do have eternity for glory. So, you know, what is this? This is just a blip on the screen. So whatever. That's not God. All the glory is deserved to him. And the, he's sitting on a throne being deified by the people. What does the Lord do? Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him. Same word as the striking of Peter. Hilarious. Struck him down because he did not give uh, God the glory. He was eating up for himself. And then this is just gross. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. He was eaten by worms. Third way of God that we can see is this. God can take out our enemies anytime he desires. Now here, and it's not going to be this way. He's taken out by worms. Um, so uh, there's a guy named Josephus. I don't know if you know who this is. This is a Jewish historian. He lived in the first century. He's just a, a history writer. That's all he is. Not a Christian. So because he's not a Christian, he has no reason to write his history uh, in such a way that would match the Bible. So he has no concern for matching the Bible. But when his history, when he's not a Christian, matches the Bible, we can be assured that what was written in the Bible and what he's written must be true. Because this guy doesn't like Christians. He's a Jew. He doesn't like Christians. So when he writes, he's just a historian, very systematic, his writing. So when he writes things that match what we see in the Bible, we know these things are true. Josephus um, highlights or, or writes the history of this guy, Herod. And he, do, he does talk about Herod going down to Tyre and Sidon and delivering some kind of oration with, with all of his you know, garbs on and sh- shining display. And it does say, this is what he says, that he died right after that. Josephus writes on Herod's death. He felt a stab of pain in his heart. And then he was also gripped in his stomach by an ache that he felt everywhere all at once that was intense from the start. And this pain, he endured it for five straight days before he departed from his life in in his 54th year. So Herod died five days after this, which means this eating by worms was some kind of long, torturous death that the Lord gave to him. So, I mean, I think it's gross and thinking it's nasty, but reading through some commentators, I kind of put them all together from Stott to Thomas to Hughes to uh, Boyce, even a little bit of R.C. Uh, intestinal worms is what this guy likely had, and they grew to the length of 16 inches long, and they just straight up ate him up from the inside all the way out. That's the Lord's retribution. I mean, I don't understand, but that's the way the Lord works for Herod. Um, the Lord has the ability to take out any enemy he desires. Now, he's not going to do that to your enemies, likely. That's not going to happen. But whatever is happening, the ways of the Lord, he wants us to understand that he can take out or remove or uh, take away the enemies that we have. Those that would oppose the Lord. Those that would oppose him. And then... Luke, the refrain of every chapter, right? It's just like he brings us from the worst, gets us all the way through chapter 12 through the bridge, and then he says this at the very end. It's, it's awesome. He, at the every end of every chapter, circumstances happen. And then he says this, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Even through all these things, what happens? The Lord moves. People are getting saved still. Fourth way of God is this. 
He brings about salvation in any circumstance. He brings about salvation. The circumstances in your life right now are not stacked so much up against God that he can't bring salvation to the people in your life that need it. The people in your life can absolutely be saved right now. So just want to review with you here for a second. The ways of man are this. They misuse the power they have in order to hurt people rather than serve. They're driven by people-pleasing. They are slow to believe in God's ability and willingness to answer their prayers. And fourth, they don't solve problems. They flee. They leave wreckage in their path. And they go to other people that would just stroke their ego. Juxtaposition or contrasted to the ways of God. He wants his church to see and understand the value of earnest prayer. Not only that, he has the ability to deliver his people. Not only that, he can take out our enemies anytime he desires. And through all that, he wants us to see this, this last truth, with his, which is he brings about salvation in any circumstance. John Stott, looking at chapter 12, summarizes it this way. It's so great. Luke depicts the complete reversal of the church's situation. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. God is the God of complete reversals. God is the God of a complete reversal in your life if you're in Christ, I guarantee you. Not just in our salvation, but even in our circumstances. He is the God that will completely reverse things. And he wants us as believers to agonize and strain and struggle and be earnest in prayer because this is the thing that moves his will. This is the thing that brings about his purposes. And he's good and he's sovereign in all of them. Let's pray. God, you're so kind to us. You're so gracious. We pray that as a church, we would see the great value in earnest corporate prayer. That we would see that you are sovereign, that you are good, that you have the ability to deliver us. We, would, we pray that we would see the good news of the gospel in this text. That we were once in sin, that we once were prisoners, that we once were condemned, we once were hopeless, we once were helpless. We had nothing. But you broke in, doing only what you can do, putting only the power that you have on display, dying on the cross, causing our chains to fall off, forgiving us of our sin in Christ, and delivering us to your kingdom. We pray that the good news of the gospel would help us understand that we don't work for approval, but from the approval we already have. And now we're free to live lives of worship to you. Come any circumstance, it doesn't matter. You're good, you're sovereign, and should you choose to see us through it, we'll give you all the glory. I pray that you would use our lives, bless our lives, cause our lives to be the witnesses, the martureos, so that we can also see the word of God increase and multiply in this city. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.